Welcome to the show, everyone. This is a light and shadow of coaching in and beyond organizations production, a documentary that was made to fund social impact through coaching for women in Kenya and which has been ICF accredited with 10 CCEUs and has won the Ellen Shue Coaching for Social Good Award from Institute of Coaching, a Harvard Medical School affiliate. This is only possible because of how all contributors had faith in the documentary, bringing about change in others' life by creating ripple effects of growth, change and development. We believe that not everyone may need coaching, but that everyone deserves coaching, including less privileged humans in our world. Today's episode is the seventh installment of conversations with coaches, leaders, educators who either donated to support coach training for women in Kenya or made an interview contribution to the documentary or sponsored the social impact initiative or actually do it all. They all have two things in common. They share their passion for social impact through coaching and love taking a holistic view at coaching from the light and shadow side of our practice. The goal of this series is to give you an intimate peek behind the curtains. What is social impact through coaching for our guests and why does social impact matter for these coaches, leaders and educators? You take a look at the messy ingredients that go into a successful coaching career that combines both the light and shadow side of coaching and how these two sides benefit our coaching practice. I'm your host or rather hostess, Tunde Erdush, and if you wish to ask a question, make a comment or recommend a guest, I invite you to send me an email at podcast at coachingdocu.com. Well, I'm here again with Michael Tichelmann, who technically speaking produced the documentary and who I wish to always have with me as he will have insights into the nitty gritty details of creating coherent stories without which learning won't be possible here. Hi, Michael. Thank you for co-hosting this show with me again. Hi, Tunde. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure, like always. Very happy to have you again with me here. And of course, my guest today is Emilia Piera, based in the UK, founder of Last Thing First, specializing in leadership development, particularly the concept of shared leadership. Emilia is also a lecturer at BPP, one of UK's leading universities. She was formerly active for NHS as a leadership and management partner and currently the chairwoman of CIO, which stands for Charitable Incorporated Organization, a charitable Polish language school. I really feel honored to have you here on this show today, Emilia. I love how you are positioning yourself as a plain spotter, heart spiller, and as someone that writes haiku on LinkedIn. Hi, Tunde. It's very nice to be here, and I am honored uh, to be invited by you. Would you like to say something about these three uh, concepts of the plane spotting, heart spilling and writing haiku a little bit to enlighten us about this refreshing way of introducing yourself on, on uh, LinkedIn? <laughs> okay, so let's start with plane spotter. Uh, I used to work as an air hostess. So we've got the hostess uh, in common as well. Uh, and just love planes and flying was always my childhood dream. So plane spotting is a way of recharging, refreshing, re-energizing. It's a hobby. Um, heart spiller, that's, uh, that's a bit more to explain. Uh, uh, I think I could say that everything, or maybe through my life journeys and recent journeys, I have really discovered that what really matters for me is affection in practice. Uh, call it affection, call it love for practice, love for people you work with, love for their development, uh, um, meaning, purpose. Uh, and I also am a oversharer, very direct. <laughs> That's a Polish nature. Uh, and I always speak the truth. The truth. Uh, I think I'm learning how that truth may be spoken in certain environments. But that hard spilling is about sharing your truth, sharing your affection, sharing your passions uh, with others for, for the benefit of the 
person that you interact with. Um, and the haiku, uh, it's a short form of writing that comes from Japan. Uh, there is a rule about it. So uh, haiku has three lines. Uh, first line is five syllables. Second line is seven syllables. And the third line is five syllables. So 17 in, in total. Um, and you kind of have to stick to the rule for the haiku to be the haiku. Um, and I started writing it uh, as a little challenge, uh, again, through interaction on LinkedIn. Uh, um, I used to write when I was uh, a teenager, then I stopped. And again, just through um, experiences, I found that writing really helps me clear my head, reflect on events, challenges, emotions. Um, and so again, I treat it as a challenge. I treat it as a reflective practice. Uh, and um, also finding new ways of uh, voicing things, so language, voice. And uh, I noticed when I write the haiku, it takes, sometimes it takes quite a while to come up to those 17 syllables that really encompass an experience. Sometimes it's quite quick. Uh, there, there is no pattern, it just depends. But I always notice when I when I do come up with my haiku, it solidifies the experience. And yeah, it's just a very wow. helpful form of reflecting. And it's, it seems like there is um, um, a structure and a routine to this, right? There is um, a, something soothing. It sounds like something soothing to, yeah. to it, right? Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. And often, often it changes. And often when I want to come up with those 17 syllables. It's, um, and when I engage with the process of reflecting and how my thoughts and emotions change about that event that I'm reflecting, um, it's amazing, it's fascinating. And every single time I discover something about myself, which is sometimes it's challenging. So mm -hmm. some of my high quality posts on LinkedIn, some of them, they are very private and I always, I just keep them for myself, but um, yeah, yeah, beautiful learning. Wow, it's very sounds very special. And then when I first read that about you, it's like, oh, I'm intrigued to know more about this. Uh, <laughs> it seems to have a very um yeah, congenial touch to this, uh, to mm. it. Beautiful. Yeah, we actually met in a moment of serendipity too. Uh, I, I think I, I got inspired by a moment of yours um to one of my posts about coaching and the relevance mm -hmm. of social impact through coaching and leadership. And the question was uh, about how to lead on the pulse of time. And you were very deep and explicit about your idea. Do you remember what it was? Uh, not explicitly, but I think what really spoke to me was the word democratizing, um, which I think that's why I grabbed it because I absolutely um, believe about equal access, people's equal access, equal sharing of um, benefits, resources, learning. Um, um, so I think that's that's what grabbed my attention. I really wanted to speak to it, uh, but then I also uh, I also um, discovered that. Although it's, I'm going to use that word, if it's governed properly, mm. <laughs> which kind of um, is really opposite to democratizing, or maybe not, depends, so we will have to have a discussion about it. But I thought if it's governed properly uh, or responsibly, that democratizing of coaching absolutely will be or is beneficial to all involved, especially to the client. But if not attended to in an ethical, responsible way, it can it can become the shadow. Uh, borrowing your uh, your words, it can become a form of oppression, and I think that's what really that's why I really wanted to speak because that was these were the things that I were was or am noticing um, in my practice and supporting other coaches practicing. Mm. So kind of where where do you see where where is that 
borderline? How do you keep the balance? And actually, whose responsibility is that? Is it, is it the responsibility of a coach to attend to the democracy of coaching? Or is it, uh, is it um, so I have an experience of internal coaching or internal supervision? Um, and my experience, my reflections always evolve around multi, um, multi-stakeholder contracting multi-stakeholder engagement um, and um, often it's not being attended to well because of lack of knowledge mm-hmm. so again when we want to democratize coaching it's beautiful but when we don't know what we're democratizing it it, it I, I guess it's risky and it can be become a, a form of oppression Mm, that's fascinating how you're saying that so I'm, what i'm hearing is so there is an element of what an element of how and an element of who we are in that mm. uh, how we conceive of ourselves as um as part of what we are doing and mm. how we are doing that yeah well um well first of all thank you for having welcomed me to your world the way you have emilia and the very fact Pleasure. of uh choosing to be here today so a very hearty welcome welcome on this show thank uh, you is there something else that you would like to add about yourself on top of what i have mentioned something that you deeply wish your audience to be aware of before we deep dive into the topic. We were speaking about truth. Maybe maybe I could introduce that. Um, Even my introduction on LinkedIn, uh, direct person, I am very direct. Uh, I think I mentioned that. It's important for me to speak the truth. It's important for me to highlight uh, the good the good, the bad, and the ugly of everything that we uh, that we experience and we notice. Um, I think what what really highlighted it for me that that, that truth that um, that democratization of practice and benefits is my um, it's my journey um, in research. Um, and we we spoke about it a few years ago at the start of the pandemic. I was uh, deployed to. Uh, one of the uh, UK's field hospitals, uh, they were called Nightingale, where I observed leadership practice. And then I got convinced that it was leadership culture, uh, but it uh, it had foundations in social interactions and how people um, related to each other. Um, and I think what I can um, I wouldn't like to speak too much about it because I'm still um, going through that uh, research uh, process. But what really um, came out from, from this for me was respect. Respect and trust. Um, and so I started um, when, so that experience was beautiful. And what really, st- um, what really uh, stood out for me when when the nightingales were closing um, and we were we were going back to our daily roles and it's 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 difficult to speak about it because i know that this time this time was um difficult and painful for many individuals but actually for me it was one of the uh, crucial the most beautiful times in my professional life because of the respect that i felt the respect that I observed, the respect uh, that I spoke about to colleagues who kind of shared my feeling and unwillingness to go back to the usual. Um, so I think, again, thinking about uh, our conversation today, it was almost, you know, can we, so let me just bring that. So I'm researching shared leadership, where the the, the, the leadership practice, decisions, responsibility, but also benefits, everything was shared among team members who uh, who grabbed it, received it, welcomed it. And because of the trust and the respect that there the was in the team, they reciprocated it, reciprocated it, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, and it felt magical because it was different to the usual environment from some of the colleagues came uh, from. Um, and so it's almost like I lived in the light. It was magical. 
and then uh, it was time to go back into the shadow. Mm. And um, I think that experience really, uh, really made me realize what is important to me. Um, I thought first, I thought that I didn't want this, um, that I wanted to share the observations, which is still true, but it was actually keeping the experience alive. And I think that what really made me realize in all forms, all of my practice, all the roles that I held, hold now and will hold in the future, um, how can I keep that light going mm. for myself, but also for people that I interact with, including coaching. Mm. And again, um, translating it into respect and responsibility, not just for myself, not for the person, the, the next person that I interact with, but actually how do we, how how are we with each other? How do we do what we're supposed to be doing or we're asked to, to, to do in our roles? that the impact of positive impact on, on, on the world, on the society, on the future generations, keep the light on. Yeah. Very beautiful. I think this touches on one of the things I'm trying to keep in mind and bring it up uh, once in a while on this podcast is um, as in these times, we have a lot of negativity. And if you look into the news, you see war, you see bad things happening. But what I want to iterate once again is it's also an opportunity. I think this might be kind of hard to say, but I think your experience shows that even in these times and in all this negativity, you can still see it as an opportunity maybe not as okay it's good uh, i have this opportunity but the opportunity to change something mm. to do something you you don't have to be like this negative in you can do something you can change something so i think that's a beautiful example yeah mm. so thank you michael so both of you of coming in so richly and also deeply, like I, I knew why I wanted Emilia to be on the show because she's like, I, she's bringing even greater depth than I was hoping that she would. And that you are chipping in, Michael, so nicely that you even um, kind of like spared me the trouble of asking you the question, what's on your mind today? Because you so beautifully uh, have interwoven uh, your interactions with each other. So, yeah, I think on my mind, I would say in one word, it what my mindset is about uh, at the current moment in this moment is I would say perseverance. Hmm. How does that resonate with you, Emilia? Uh, what Michael is bringing to this table today, perseverance. Yeah, I think, um, I think it's to keep the light on. So again, it, um, from that context that I mentioned, it was, it was the, the the leadership, the vision, the the purpose, the meaning, uh, why why we're here, why we're there. But I think in coaching is that, and I think it's a, so it's a blessing, but also it may be a curse. And I think that's where we're coming here into the the democratizing and oppression, the the light and the shadow. And I think, um, I think for coaches, it's a beautiful thing. Because you you are the torchbearer for many many people. I I heard something um, lately, which kind of talked about the ripple effect. Maybe even it was uh, it was one of the documentaries uh, um, episodes. The ripple effect, how big responsibility it is to be a coach. If you think about you know the person that you are working with, supporting, helping, guiding, coaching and they go and interact with one, two, three, four people, and those people interact with the next one. It's it's enormous. So if you, if you start thinking about that, it gives you great power, but also could be very, uh, what's, the, what's the word, stifling, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, yeah, yeah. I also, I... I always choose to see the light. So I think that perseverance is the hold the just keep the lights on, and and always navigate, navigate to it. 
Yeah, I think it's like uh, the saying from from Spider Man: "With great power comes great responsibility." <laughs> okay, exactly. To quote Spider Man. Okay, so I'm happy to pick up from here and. Uh, Emilia, like in your role, um, I think you are doing organizational coaching and actually currently you're supervising internal coaches. Mm -hmm. um, so what is it, which shadows do you keep seeing working with coaches uh, on a daily basis? Mm -hmm. I think I think the the biggest is not the, the right word, the encompassing encompassing. Uh, shadow is lack of understanding what coaching is hmm. um and and probably i i would say uh from the sponsorship so it's not it's not the coaches it's not the human resources maybe it's not the l and d departments who kind of hold the coaching service but it's the it's the senior management it's those people responsible for organizations i think there's either lack of understanding what coaching could do or bring to organizations, to individuals, or lack of an engagement. So for example, what I, what I see is uh, coaching is now uh, accessible, which is absolutely brilliant. Uh, but I think what coaches are um, um, finding, where coaches find the biggest challenge is that they are not sure what they are attending to. Is it that they attend to the coaches' needs or is it that they attend to the organization needs because there isn't that link? And I think that's this is what I'm uh, what I'm thinking there is lack of understanding what coaching can do. So if maybe if organizations if organizations bring coaching and democratize coaching, so kind of access to all, brilliant, um, maybe it has to be stated more explicitly. Um, that actually coaches are there, <laughs> coaches out there to attend to the individual coaches who come um, and start relationships. But then I'm not sure, I am not sure how beneficial that is. How do we evaluate it? How do we measure the return on investment? In my experience and from hearing from coaches is that even if they engage in that kind of contract between one-to-one -one coach, coachee, there is always uh, organizational intervention, but without, um, how do I say, or the organization wants to intervene, wants to control it somehow, but there isn't, there isn't attention on the outcomes. What good does coaching bring? It's more about measuring how many sessions that we have. So for example, one problem that I usually see is the, uh, um, the three to six sessions, and um, in the in the charitable sector or public sector where I usually have a, a experience, uh, we notice, and it's not it's not a it's it's not a secret um, at all. Uh, uh, well being, tiredness, exhaustion, psychological um, exhaustion, lack of safety, lack of feeling safe, uh, time pressures. Even coaches coming to com coaching conversations, uh, coaches now uh, mindfully schedule time for the coachee to offload and arrive in the room, be present. Um, and it often takes those three or even up to six sessions to to build a relationship, to really to really start to have conversations about what will that relationship be about. So. Again, it's almost like again going back to democratizing and and oppression. So yes, it's a form of de uh, democracy. Everybody in organizations can have access to coaching and can benefit from it. But then, when when there is lack of understanding, lack of support, lack of measure, proper measure, it can become a form of oppression. Because, so for example, if a coach if a coachee comes to a re or is released, let's say let's use that word, is released from duty. Um, um, and it's time bound and they only just start to really think and feel or articulate what they would like to achieve through coaching but it's time to wrap up, finish the relationship because, sorry, the provision is, is, is finished, it becomes a very difficult 
it becomes a baggage mm. for them. They they've left with that feeling of um, disappointment, I guess. Mm. So what is so you described it as a shadow side because you answered to my question which shadows you keep seeing working with coaches. Mm. I I'm hearing the two aspects like the sponsorship not understanding what actually coaching can produce in terms of outcomes mm. and then coaches work being um sort of limited the impact that they can do actually being limited through the circumstances and the requirements put in place um what is this thing that through your knowledge and experience how to address this in a world where we want to democratize and actually make it accessible. And so there is, isn't it a paradox that there is on one hand, this willingness to make it accessible to more people, but on the other hand, there's lack of understanding, like, like, what can it do? Like, how do we marry these two, two readinesses, so to speak, the two mm. levels of readiness? I don't, I don't have an answer. <laughs> <laughs> there's probably there's probably many answers to it. Um, I think one word that I mentioned today and something I was thinking about recently is is, is the coaching presence. We talk about coaching presence. Um, and maybe the answer is that th those organizational sponsors and any anybody that is in organizations involved in coaching ha has that coaching presence. It needs to maybe it needs to be relooked at and re re-articulated, re-organized. So for a funny situation last week with my students, um, which came from um, looking at attendance and the phrase that happened in the classroom was present outside. We had a little laughter about it, but then brought it to coaching supervision when we were talking about present, being present outside, how that may look like and thinking about it today and those organizational coaching, I think um, the sponsorship, the senior uh, managers, they are present outside. So they kind of, again, there's that intervention, there is there is, there is uh, the sponsorship, yes, we would like coaching. Um, it's almost like a, it's almost like a political game. We have coaching, our people attend, uh, have access yeah. to coaching, coaching is beautiful, we train coaches. Uh, we had this many relationships this year. These are the, the kind of criteria that how we measure coaching effectiveness, but they are not present in the conversations. And I think, again, in immature, non-democratic organizations, I find that coaches also are, and again, because it's internal, uh, very political um, sphere, coaches also don't speak um about the themes, about the stories that they hear in coaching. So if we if we bring coaching to um, empower people and it, to bring change and to change how we operate and to change organizations, those stories need to be told somehow. And I think until we have this presence insight where people are, people, sponsors, um, everybody involved in organizational coaching are willing and ready to hear those stories that shadow may prevail but again i always choose to look, look into the light so i think maybe maybe the answer is from present outside into present inside involve everybody in coaching presence which may look different on different levels creating spaces where um and i think again coach as the light bearer how do they bring that light and seeing those stories which sometimes sometimes and hearing those truths that sometimes may be very challenging and very heavy and very difficult how can coaches bring that light light it up hold the torch up and 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 speak the truth the organizational truth which is which is a big ask actually so it's mm. Yeah, and, and you were speaking about oppression as well as 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 an opposing term to democratization of coaching, mm. um, and you brought it up this term like a few times now. Um, so you seem to see that there is something being oppressed, something's not working. So on one hand, coaching being 
made accessible, but there is some oppressive element. Can you specify that a little bit, like in what ways you see that there is oppression happening as a shadow okay. side? Okay, so um, so maybe let's start with the Kochi, uh, who are being given access to coaching, who maybe are coming and benefiting and discovering the truth. Maybe they are changing, maybe they are finding a new voice, um, but the system around them is not changing. And they may be they may be willing, they may be aspiring, they may be ready to make, again, to, to make some change, but they are being, I'm going to use that word again, released back into the ecosystem from which they came, where they cannot change. Or if they, uh, if they display uh, totally different behaviors, which may be radical to how they behaved previously, um, that may not be received well in a positive light. So I think that becomes a form of oppression for a coach who who has seen the light, <laughs> who has uh, maybe um, experienced a different world, a different truth, uh, and have to, has to go back to the same environment. So kind of, I think maybe that's why I brought uh, the uh, Nightingale experience, because I think that's, that, that's very similar to how I felt. I was in a magical environment where I did not want to leave. I did not want to leave. Even though that it was outside, it was difficult for some. I did not want to admit it because I felt brilliant. It was just, yes, it was it was my magic. That's my word. It was my magic. And 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 suddenly I had to face the truth. I have to go back to an environment where I didn't feel exactly the same way. So for me, it was yes, I think Michael, you have uh touched on it individuals are left with the choice and usually you can see uh that um war warriorship is that a word yes yes where people do take that torch say that light light yeah. go back to the areas and they they change the practice and they persevere but it's mm -hmm. um again it's a it's 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 very very hard it's very prolonged it's very tiring and I even checked in um, in the dictionary, my Oxford dictionary, uh, the prolonged, cruel, or unjust treatment or exercise of authority, that's oppression, and also mental pressure. So I guess if when you go back to the environment where you um, subject yourself to mental pressure, um, even though it was your choice, it's a form of oppression. Mm. And I think on the, on the coach uh, level, Again, I think I mentioned that already. When you you hear the stories, you have you you know the side of the coin that maybe others outside of that coaching space don't know about. And again, how do you in a political environment because environment because you are an internal coach, how do you operate that? And again, that's a form of distress. That's a form of oppression, where you know the truth, the coachy truth, you know the organizational truth, and you yourself cannot close the gap you cannot speak your truth right actually something there you go we're advocating yeah. to be direct and speak the truth um this is there's no way so it's that's yeah. what you mean by being oppressed you can't yeah. speak up michael yeah. you wanted to say something yeah i think for the organization from the organization's point of view coaching sometimes is treated like a benefit like you receive coaching now we want uh, expect results and if the results are that in this organization, I cannot change, I have changed, but the organization is not changing because we're only treating mm -hmm. this like, okay, here's your benefit. Now we want the reward. Then I think it's very hard on the coachee and the mm -hmm. coach what is expected from the organizational point of view. And you can't, Maybe it's possible, I don't know, but you can put like the whole organization into coaching. So going back to democratization, you would need for everyone in the mm. organization to keep in mind, okay, we are in a change process. We want to yeah. change. And often this is coaching is brought in from the top down. So maybe the management is in this mindset. Okay, we want to change. We have these goals. We want to go in a direction. 
but the rest of the organization sometimes is very hard to follow or even to have the mindset to be ready mm -hmm. for change. Even if you look into the world, uh, going back to this topic, if, if everything is changing, it's very hard to change yourself because change is uncertainty in some mm. in some ways. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think coaching as an internal coach from an outsider's point of view seems like a minefield of ethical dilemmas because different than a doctor, you're not re you're kind of subservient to the organization and you want to be beneficial for the organization. So I think it's it's very hard sometimes. Absolutely. And I like what you've said about the coaching the whole organization. And I would like to know some case studies where that happens and how that happens. Um, and we kind of touched upon it with uh, Tunde today. I had this, um, this week, I think something is happening this week. Uh, and last week, a lot of talk about group and team coaching, isn't it? And kind of this, you know, if you coach the leaders, you coach the the hero individual. So how do you engage? And then you you kind of again slot the leader back into the team, the dynamics, the politics, the the, the ethics, the challenges. So how do you coach the whole organization? And I was thinking about this concept of action learning sets, where you have action learning sets facilitators who facilitate the conversations, the sets. But also you have the, I think the word is akosher, somebody who's responsible of, uh, for uh, instilling action learning culture in organization and kind of is like a, like a shepherd, like a governor of action learning. So I'm not sure what the word would be for coaching, but it's almost like we, can we have somebody who will be, who will have this helicopter view of, what coaching happens in terms of individuals, what coaching happens in terms of leaders, but also bringing, again, bringing those stories to the sponsors, to the to the exec, to the senior managers, and coaching them through those stories that are being told and lived in organizations. Mm. Because I think, so maybe there's something about is there Tunde? You tell me. Yes, I, I, coaching. Yes, I, I. You know what's coming to my mind because you are, you were asking like what is the right word for this and and actually the the, the term accoucher is, is it's it's a French word, mm -hmm. and it means actually like the midwife. You know, the midwife mm -hmm. is assisting the birth of a child, and accoucher mm -hmm. means something like this. There is somebody assisting that something can be born. Like in, in terms of accoucher, um, it's somebody who is like mm -hmm. a human being is being born and brought into this world. And and in, in the coaching term, like when you're talking in this context about uh, coaching, like how to the action learning sets, how to how to facilitate on a more meta level, how to, to, to give it birth so that it can grow into a culture, it can yeah. grow into, a, into an, um, a legitimate being. Um, yeah. In, in in an organization so that's that, that was coming to my mind and it's a beautiful idea actually to um to have this concept in place uh, sounds like a little bit of a light you know while i was listening to our conversation i was getting this sense of oh my god we are getting so shadowy here <laughs> in, in the first 30 minutes and it was owing also to my question about like what is the what are you experiencing that keeps uh what do you keep seeing um as a shadow side when working mm. with coaches so it's owing to my question as well but i was noticing like we are getting so shadowy here how can we bring mm. a little bit more light into into uh, how we are addressing this thing so and i had this this question to you about shared leadership to to bring a bit more light into in into the topic um you said something about shared leadership so i i I'd love to to hear your definition of shared leadership, but also how about if we had the concept like shared coaching mm. without knowing explicitly what shared leadership is to you and how to potentially translate it into something, a similar concept that would that we could call shared coaching. Would you be happy to, to tell us a bit more about, um, about shared leadership from this aspect? 
Okay, so what what I'm finding and what really spoke to me, uh, it was the um, <laughs> the trust. And the big thing that came, I heard when I listened to one of my participants was that trust is a gift. And only, so it's almost, and I, like I said, like I'm drawing and bringing lessons to all areas in which I practice, that whatever I do, it's a gift. And I don't, I don't expect anything in return. And now I, I probably am, um, opening myself to uh, a, a debate and maybe some disagreements, but maybe what I could, I haven't asked that question myself of myself uh, before. So thank you for that, Tunde. That actually, can we treat treat coaching as a gift, where you give coaching, and you do not expect anything in return. Also, the outcome. Mm. so that we are yeah. not attached to anything so absolutely then, then absolutely we from the shadow side because it's absolutely irrelevant right so yeah. it doesn't matter whether there is return on investment for organizations it doesn't matter whether we get feedback from and i know that this is very abstract now but maybe i mean not a lot abstract maybe that's what it is you give coaching as a gift a um a service, act of love, act of affection for the next person who is growing in front of you, not expecting anything back. And you trust, because we do in coaching, you trust that they have the resources to receive that gift and run with it. Mm. And I know that, you know, probably there is a lot about that, that responsibility, how responsible you are as a coach to ask questions, to to observe them. But again, if we if we in coaching treat coaches as equals, that they have all the resources that they need, we just again we just help to shed the light, and or you know put the spotlight on on what they may not be seeing in the moment. The moment they see it, they find. Mm. It's like my last thing first. Uh, you know, Stephen Covey had what he have <laughs> begin with the end in mind. But whatever, that my last thing first was my light. And I often found when I coached that as 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 soon as as partners, partners in crime, they they see the light, they know exactly where they're heading. I'm not needed there. Off they go. So basically, this shared leadership principle is based on the ethics of trust. So pick Absolutely. up to, to yeah. Michael's idea around ethical. So there are many ethical yeah. things, but yeah. there's also the concept of the ethics of trust. So to treat, to, to be ethical just uh, from the point of view of, from not knowing um, and let go of worrying, letting go of those things that... Um, <laughs> Form yeah. the shadow and we can formulate our worries and, and, and fears and doubts about everything yeah. Yeah. or our attachment to some some specific outcomes and rather lean into the, the, the a trusting relationship that that you seem to have benefited from in within your leadership and experiences right that that is yeah. called shared leadership which is based on trust yeah so and yeah. to to export it so or translate it into into coaching yeah. shared coaching yeah. principle yeah and also trust the organization it would mean actually we coaches to lean into yeah. into yeah. ripple effect you yeah. said something yeah. about ripple effect today so yeah. when yeah. we trust our coaches then and how to encourage them to trust their organization that yeah. it's gonna happen so uh, yeah. rather than start yeah. investing energy in worries doubts uh and and yeah. oppressive thoughts or something or, or dwelling exactly on and you know psychology we talk about uh, mindset and um, nurturing positive mindset so if if let's let's stay with trust but it could be anything if um so what i'm finding and what some research suggests as well that when you when you give and you don't expect anything in return usually people will want to reciprocate it anyway it's like a favor kindness they will want to pay back um and if they don't actually your trust is not broken because you've never expected anything back in return so you yes exactly you don't you don't get hurt 
Mm. You don't get oppressed. Yeah, yeah. So go in 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 with this mindset into things and also bring it to the to the organization level. Sort of thing. This uh, shared leadership principle in a in a coaching yeah. context. Well, can you tell us something about this last thing first? Again, you mentioned COVID, um, but but like, what is this principle about for you? Um, um, so again, um, I was looking for a name that would um, describe those experiences that actually, when when you know the goal, when you know the destination, or when you know the purpose, however you want to call it, but you know your end aim, when that is clear to you, when you articulate it, the, the journey to it is easy or easier, at least, right? The, then you can persevere because you know exactly where you where you're heading, your light in the tunnel. Um, and the, the the name actually, uh, well, it's a credit to a person that I worked with, who I call my twin, Locker to bits, Jennifer. Hello. Um, we were laughing that um, she never reads books from the front. She she <laughs> reads the last page first. Um, so the it was last page first, but then it became lasting first. And uh, again, credit. I think everything that I do in life, I always I always attach it to loyally to someone or something that happened. So um, it had to be lasting first, credit to, to oh. my twin. Oh, yeah, but it's the light in the tunnel. Once you know it, yeah, once you know it, everything becomes easy. Mm. There is still something about your Nightingale experience that, that I'm not sure our audience has picked up on without meaning to imply that our mm -hmm. audience don't understand us. But I, I'm sitting with this question and then I was thinking like maybe our audience might benefit from that as well. You're very explicit. You said something about how um, how enriching that experience was and and, and changing your, your way of conceiving the world. What exactly did you experience? What was this leadership role modeling really what was it what was so spectacular about it again i mean the the, the general the general general word <laughs> vocabulary would be respect mm -hmm. um so i have one person in mind who i worked with uh, before that experience um who is my role model uh who taught me leadership like nobody else and I always, always uh, refer in my in my reflections how they would behave, what would have done, how would they would have interacted with people, uh, respect in terms of behavior, respect in terms of um, words spoken, um, being truthful, but in a kind way, um, being open, being honest, transparent, and really, really high integrity where they would be really clear about what they can and also very clear about what they cannot do. And uh, they would seek um, others and others' expertise to come and fill the space and always give credit to others. So I think that was, all of this was, I called it respect, it was my magic. But also observing how people interacted. I mean, it was very... Um, and I was in a very lucky position uh, because I I wasn't observant there more, um, and maybe maybe that's how it had to be, where I observed how people responded to the leadership, and again they reciprocated it, they gave back, they gave back what they could, and they also went and looked for skills, experience, anything that they could contribute. To the to the higher purpose, um, and the conversations with 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 other colleagues, I think that really again I use the word again solidified um, in me that believed that there it was something special, something magical, mm. because because colleagues wanted to be there, colleagues wanted to do extra time, colleagues wanted to support one another, and it 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 didn't matter. Um, how long it took it didn't matter whether they would get paid it did it, nothing matter they wanted to help one another so that was the culture that I think it started with that designated leader 
Mm. No, I don't think I know. I know. So it's it's not a myth. It's not a cliche that it's, it's not a no. Absolutely. Because we we do have a lot of concepts around today in terms of defining leadership that everybody's a leader. Yeah. So everybody, yeah. But basically, according to your story and your experience, it does take somebody symbolic. Yeah. Yeah. To, to, to even if everybody is yeah. having leadership roles um yeah. any given moment but it, it it still takes somebody like a yeah. torch bearer you said today today you were using yeah. bearer, so, somebody to symbolize this and role yeah. model this uh yeah. for everyone yeah. right yeah and from the conversations uh another thing I think my thought is escaping me so I'll try to catch it before it goes <laughs> um when yes when i when i decided to uh, start my research project because i didn't want it to to end i my my first phrase was that i wanted to share it and again i still want to share this because again it, it it's tangible it was it was real but the thing is that i didn't want it to end and I, the other colleagues that I spoke with, they they didn't want it to end. So it was a, a way of keeping it alive again, keeping the the, the lights on. Um, and in my research, the questions that I'm asking are about: uh, Did it? Is it is it prolonged? Is it still alive? And it is. So again, that role modeling, that symbolism, people carried it with them into the organizations, whatever they they went back to. And I think why it's so important for me when I first started looking at it into it, um, or that experience in Nightingale, it was about understanding what leadership is or how leadership should be done in organizations for democratization, for for equality, for inclusion, for ethical practice, but only through the through the whole process of research and talking to people, it was um, it was me understanding myself, mm. who I am, who I want to be, what I want to share, and by by my gifts, how I gift to other, how I want to uh, what's the word? Almost build a legacy, take mm. somebody's legacy, carry it, and and share it. Again, for for the benefits of future generations, even people who, that are not born yet, mm, so the responsible practice for high social impact, long longevity, longevity. Yes, uh -huh. <laughs> you know there is some something kind of like that. Today I'm full of paradoxes in my mind. I'm noticing how I am picking up paradoxes everywhere, and I and I I'm noticing about myself picking up yet another paradox around this nightingale experience as if it had been conditioned by external circumstances that this sort of leadership behavior i don't know i, I don't want to kind of like attach it to that particular external circumstance of covid but what is your take on does it do you think it takes such external circumstances to facilitate um to accoucher, huh? to uh, to to facilitate the birth of leadership, exemplary leadership like this. I think there was um, it was definitely a uh, important component. The the fact that uh, what happened happened. It was during the time of COVID and the unknown and um, crisis. So definitely has sparkled it. Because I think if it wasn't for the fact that the people that came together wouldn't have come together and they wouldn't have created what they created. Um, but I think the lessons, and again, the fact that we have lived through it, it's our lived experience. And definitely I am, and I know some of, 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 my, of my colleagues, it's that kind of life goal to, to keep it alive, to to practice by the same principles so yes i think that the the environment has has um inputted but i also believe that it can it can be maybe not replicated but it can be it can be practiced it can be shared it can be spoken about mm, yeah to conceive it as a way forward right yeah no matter which environment has facilitated yeah. birth it's birth but how to yeah, yeah. I, I think there's a uh... 
kind of organizational approach to this that some companies do is to kind of rally the people around one project, bring them together, have very not a strict hierarchy and to facilitate this kind of mindset. I've heard about there's a couple examples out there of organizations doing this. There's also, of course, some shadow sides if the project's mm -hmm. not very popular. It's never getting done because they can't. The people can't come together. But I think it's very interesting in terms of yeah. uh, what kind of relations you can build. And for the organizations, is totally different approach than the typical approach. Mm. Mm. Yes, I do have. Uh, thank you for this input, Michael. It's um, bringing like like it, what you have just said is. Reminding me is reminding me of what Emilia said something about speaking the truth and being direct. So to make projects uh, a success, or what does it take to to speak the truth and to be direct, rather than you know uh, uh, put it under the rug or shell it under the rug or do as if it like projects didn't happen, as Michael was saying. So it's, there's not not much talk. What does it take to speak truth and, and how to do that? Because we, we know that speaking the truth, I'm confident that everybody is interested in speaking the truth, but it's, it's a big ask and to be direct. So what are the light and shadow sides of speaking the truth and how to do it well? You said if it's done well, then it's it can uh, create big impact. Hmm. I think courage courage and confidence, but it comes, I think it comes with experiences, maybe also those shadow experiences. Um, and funny, hard spiller, apparently the word hard uh, is related to the word courage. So when you speak your heart, you speak your courage. Um, and the shadows, I guess you, I think uh, speaking for myself, I am more courageous and confident to speak the truth now than I was before uh, because it has benefited me and I'm also more willing and maybe mature to accept that the truth may not be um, maybe maybe difficult, may not be what um, the recipient is ready for. Uh, so again, on those shadow experiences, is, I guess it's Maybe that forward reflection before you speak the truth. Think about the readiness, people's readiness to hear what you have to say. Uh, maybe also contracting. Let's let's bring coaching into to it. Contracting about speaking the truth. Um, and and how it's being spoken. So I am very direct, but I I I I when I choose to. Um, and maybe that's the, the power of democratizing coaching and coaching training and coaching experience that how how the truth can be spoken maybe in the form of, of a question or or a metaphor or analogy that it keeps the listener thinking and reflecting. But maybe it's not it's not that direct, it's not that explicit. So maybe it's a maturity, it's courage, it's maturity and truth literacy. Is there such a phrase? Well, just <laughs> coin it. Feel free. <laughs> just, just, just develop, just create it. <laughs> we are here to democratize the language as well. So it's okay. Feel free to create. Coin your your words as you feel free. Um, okay. Yeah, I, I I would say courage was the first thing that came to my mind also. But I think sometimes truth can also be very hurtful in relationships mm. or just in the organization. Mm. Uh, as you said, uh, the environment in and thinking about how the truth is received is like the key that comes with experience. At mm. least that's my experience. Yeah. And maybe also courage to hold the consequences of speaking the truth. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And and also have empathy for for environments mm. that cannot 
um, digest truth in a in a specific moment in time, but maybe ready have the maturity also a maturity and readiness to to hear it in a different moment in the future. Um, to have that maturity as well, to have empathy that, uh, like you were speaking about the internal coaches, how they <laughs> cannot speak their truth, but uh, just to stay with this, to to have this trust, if you will, not just the courage, but to trust that when the truth wants to emerge, it will have the right space and time and environment in which to come to the light. Uh, mm, beautiful. To finish on this note, um, Emilia, because we are coming, um, we are nearing the, the top of our time. Do you have something as a gift for our audience to take away some tips or advice that you have for our listeners, um, based on what we have been sharing today in a, in our natural dialogue? Um, Yeah, actually, yes, <laughs> that's a question. Maybe let's just use the last word, have courage, find courage to seek your light. And I'm not sure if I have an advice, but definitely um, maybe like an ending uh, that sometimes you have to go through the shadows, you have to experience the shadows to appreciate the light. Yeah. And and how did you find your courage? Because that was something that is so apparently we can find our courage. So it's it's spotable and it's it's masterable, right? There's something that we can we can find and identify and work with. How did you find yours? Maybe that could be an advice for people uh, to, to to take away. So almost like comparing comparing how I felt when I didn't speak my truth to how um, integral, full, honest, um, real, purposeful, meaningful I felt when I did speak my truth. And again, learning how to, learning different forms of speaking the truth, but definitely that gives me courage. That I can, very simply, I can look into the mirror and smile after I have spoken the truth rather than uh, withhold it, withhold it. Mm. and have guilt or probably blame self-blame around yeah. not having done it so compare the two instances when yeah when you have spoken yeah. Yeah. when you haven't spoken and then see like who do you wish to be yeah how do you want to show up mm-hmm. and see it see it as a gift see it as a light therefore it makes me think about how how what form to communicate it with yeah beautiful yeah, thank you very, very much. Michael, thank you. is there something else that would you like to end on a note as well, Michael? Is there something that has been unaddressed for you, has remained unaddressed for you today? I, I would ask Emilia to just two sentences, maybe. What what was what did you take away from the documentary? Just brief, just a taste what what was why should people watch the documentary in your opinion you could be here you'll have to cut it out <laughs> um i think what really gave gave me um idea or pushed me into thinking about the the coaching presence something that Claire Pedrick is talking about the container so again maybe it speaks to the truth that sometimes or the oppression you have to empty the container first in order for the new things to for the new light to come in uh so that's that that that's one um and the other thing um in terms of democratizing when you, I guess for coaches, for coaches to think about their practice, uh, their preparedness for different coaches um, and how how democratic are they in their practice. And I think, again, it speaks to probably what Claire Pedrick also said about this fear when 
you hold silences or you use, you know, all your um, equipment, coaching equipment that you have. Um, and you think I haven't really done much work because you're not supposed to. And coaches, those less experienced, come back to you and say, oh, thank you for telling me this or that. So I think um, I think these are the two things, but definitely I would um, suggest um, any coach or anyone who wants to um, get engaged in coaching, think about how ready, how equipped, how knowledgeable they are about coaching and what democratizing coaching means for them. Yeah. Thank you. I hope that answers your questions. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Okay, so we are on top of our time. Emilia, thank you so, so much. Michael, thank you so, so much. Thank you. Okay, guys, so if you are interested in getting instant access to the documentary, please go to www.coachingdocu.com. And if you have comments or questions on how you can be part of this initiative, drop us a line at podcast at coachingdocu.com. This is a light and shadow of coaching in and beyond organizations production, a documentary that was made to fund social impact through coaching for women in Kenya. And this is my guest, Emilia Piera, and you can reach Emilia via Emilia at lastthingfirst.co.uk. Feel free to reach out to us and leave your comments. Stay tuned and until next time. Thank you so much. Thank you.